happening. Some of you all have iPhones. If you do, I have a photo op for you between services. Uh, Isaiah and Jared both would like to wear cheese heads. They would love to have a picture with you today. Uh, thou shalt not bet if you are a Bears fan. Just saying. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and ask God to uh, guide our time. Father God, as we look at the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We pray that we would have a good glimpse of what it's about, and that we ourselves would learn to mourn, to grieve over sin, personal sin, corporate sin, national sin. Father, help us to have the mind of your Son, the mind of Christ. Help us to understand your word, to live it out, to honor it, and to rejoice in it. Father, help us to go and share that word with others as we grow in Christ. And Father, we do want to remember Dan and Grace Esterline and Mark Voss as they serve in Ethiopia on a short-term mission trip. As they have gone, we pray that you would empower them to bring the gospel to those who may not have it or to bring encouragement to those who have already embraced your son, brothers and sisters in Christ in Ethiopia. And allow their trip to be all that you desire it to be. Father, again, we ask that you would guide our time. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. A number of us are very familiar with the text in John chapter 7, verse 53 to 8, 11. If you know the text, it starts out by saying that Jesus is in the temple teaching. I can almost picture what probably happened. There were different sections of the temple, different rabbis teaching. Perhaps after one of those sessions, at various points in the temple, some friends got together. I can almost picture one of them saying, man, my session was great. Francis Chan was a teacher. He was awesome. Someone else said, yeah, mine was great too, R.C. Sprawl. He was teaching my section. A gal said, well, it was Beth Moore, and, and she was teaching mine, and everybody was impressed. And then a little young girl piped up and said, well, my teacher was Jesus. And all of a sudden, these A-liners, these all-stars, seem like bench players. I mean, we can sympathize with these other rabbis. We can sympathize the, with those who didn't hear Jesus. I would have loved to have been there. I'm sure you would have. Look who you're stuck with this morning. And while Jesus is teaching, the text tells us that some Pharisees and scribes come up. And they drag a woman with them, not just any woman, a woman with history, a woman with a reputation, the wrong kind. 
one of those women. And I'm not going to defend perhaps her actions, but I don't like the way she's treated. Not at all. It's without grace. It's without mercy. It's without love. And she's dragged before Jesus. And one of the Pharisees pipes up and says, Moses commands that we stone her to death. What saith you? And of course, it puts Jesus, earthly speaking, in a predicament, but Jesus is never in a predicament. But the idea is to trap Jesus. The idea is for Jesus either to say, you know what, I disagree with Moses. And that would divide the crowds against him. Or for Jesus to say, well, if Moses says stone him, I say it too. And then his message of grace and mercy seems to be lost. But Jesus does neither. Jesus kneels down in the sand and he begins to write in the sand. Don't you wish you had had a sneak peek, a front row seat, wondering what Jesus might have written? Maybe he wrote hypocrites or double-minded men or those who lack mercy or grace. I would love to know what Jesus wrote, but the text doesn't tell us. But then Jesus looked up at the accusers and he said, I have a great idea. We're going to give honor to the most godly among you. He who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Gulp. Double gulp. Then he goes back to writing in the sand. And you remember a few moments later, he looks up and and all the accusers have snuck off in groups of two and three and one. And he says to the woman, where are your accusers? Is nobody left here to condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. Don't miss that word. No one, kurios, no one, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and try and do a little bit better. And that's not what he said. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, she called him Lord. Lord means that he is the master. He is on the throne. He is the king of our lives. Lord means that we listen to his inspired and errant word and the power of God's spirit. We seek to obey, to turn from sin and towards righteousness. That's what it means if Jesus is Lord. And she called him Lord. Would she sin again? Of course. Will you, will I sin again? Yes. John even tells us in 1 John, if we claim that we have no sin, we are liars, and the truth is not in us. That's why we need to confess our sin, and he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But if he is the Lord of our life, we strive with every fiber of our being to obey his inspired and errant word. I think the year was 2000. I know it was a Wednesday night. It was a couple years before I moved here in 2002. I was in the church I pastored in Pennsylvania. Being a Wednesday night, there were lots of kids there 
lots of youth there. The church was bustling, and I had an appointment. It was a woman I had met last Sunday previous. She had shook my hands, and she told me she wanted to meet with me. She was one of those women. She had a reputation. She had history. I actually knew that she was a madam. The first madam, and by the way, the last madam, I think I have ever met. At least knowingly so. But she wanted to know about Jesus, and I'll talk to anyone about Jesus. I was excited, but I was also quite nervous. She came into my office, and I began to tell her about Jesus. In fact, Pastor Dave mentioned that I cited Romans 10, 9, and 10 last week, and then he did it again, and I'm going to do it a third time, because that's what I shared with her. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised her from the dead, you will be saved. For the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And I went on to tell her that we are all sinners. And sin is any attitude, action, thought, motive, even inactivity outside the will of God. She readily agreed with me that we were both sinners. I talked to her about God becoming man, the incarnation, the hypostatic union of Christ, fully God, fully man, which by my math is one fully too many, but Jesus pulled it off. And he lived a perfect life on earth, and he went to the cross, and he laid down his life for us. In the most unbelievable exchange, he offers us his perfect righteousness in place of our sin, if we by faith would accept what he did on the cross as a payment of our sin, his death for our sin, his resurrection as the first payment of life after the grave for us. I explained it all to her. And then I asked her if she were ready to believe in Jesus as Savior. And she said yes. But something in me told me she didn't understand yet. I take it that the Spirit of God was, was guiding me to circle back around. And so I explained one more time. I said, you know, Jesus takes us as we are, madam or otherwise. But Jesus does not intend to leave us as we are. So if we accept Christ... His spirit enters into us, and spirit begins to persevere through us, and we begin to bear fruit, and God will require you, me, to begin to be transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. And she said, I don't want that. I want to be a born-again madam. And I want my employers or my employees to be born-again employees. That's what I want. And like the rich young man, she walked away with a woeful continence. You see, she wanted fire insurance. She wanted a Savior, but she did not want a Lord. What did Jesus say to the woman in John seven fifty three to eight eleven? 
He said, go and sin no more. He wanted her, he wants you, he wants me to confess, to be contrite, to mourn over sin. And then we are comforted. As he forgives, he gives grace, and then he transforms us little by little, incrementally, into the image of Christ. The second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Some of you remember C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. You remember the book, The Silver Chair. In there we meet Puddlegrum. He's a half frog, half human, with an attitude like Eeyore. And he had a little saying, in every silver lining, there's a rainstorm. That's not the mourning we're talking about. We're talking about mourning over sin. The word mourn is panthane. It actually derives itself from a Hebrew counterpart, abal. And these two words, when they're used in Scripture, Old and New Testament, predominantly, if not exclusively, are used for mourning, not over somebody's death, not over personal loss, it's mourning over sin. It's the contrition that you and I feel when we realize the sin in our life and our sin nailed Christ to the cross and he paid the penalty for our sin. And because we love him as an act of worship, we grieve, we mourn, we are contrite over sin. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In this regard, I think of Psalm 51. You might want to turn there. I'm going to spend a lot of time. Psalm 51, I want to read the first 10 verses. This is David mourning over sin. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly for my iniquity. Cleanse me for my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me, not talking about intimacy as being sin, talking about original sin. We are born with a sin nature, tainted with sin. We are totally depraved, which doesn't mean we're as evil as we can be. It just means every part of our being is touched by sin. Verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop. I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Barah, create. Only God can do that. It's a word that only God does. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. 
as you probably know, Psalm 51, as well as Psalm 32, are David's response to the events of 2 Samuel 11 and 12. In 2 Samuel 11 and 12, we read that it was a time of year when kings go out to do battle, but David remained at home. It's a time of year when kings defend their people, when they make sure the borders are secure and that invaders are repelled. But David has been doing this kinging thing for quite some time. He's a little bored of it, and so he stays at home. And it's night. And David's palace is near Hezekiah's tunnel. For those who have been to Israel, you know it's an elevated spot. You know that as you look out, there's a little valley, and then there's a number of houses down below. It was that way 3,000 years ago as it is today. And so David is up on his roof, and he spies something. He spies someone who catches his attention. He should have looked and immediately ruled it out of bounds. She was beautiful. That's not the problem. He was weak. That's the issue. Rather than ruling it out of bounds, he's a married man. She's a married woman. Not to one another. He looked again, and then he lost it. And then he called for her. Is Bathsheba innocent? I don't know. Let's be honest. She has no choice in the matter. She's a commoner. He's a king. This could be rape. Regardless, intimacy occurs. A few days later, she sends word to David she's pregnant. And you remember David wants to cover his tracks rather than admit his sin He seeks to cover his tracks. In fact, I suppose at that moment, maybe there's a bit of contrition. There ought to have been. Bathsheba's husband is Uriah. He's a member of David's secret service detail. He's one of David's mighty men. You say, well, he's paid for that. That doesn't make them close. But long before David was king, Uriah was tramping the countryside with David when David's face was on most wanted posters, when David was on the lamb, when to be associated with David was a capital offense. Uriah was by his side. Uriah was his bodyguard. And David steals Uriah's wife. He calls for Uriah from the front. Uriah's where David should be. He assumes that Uriah would delight in his wife. But Uriah is a man of uncanny honor. And while his comrades are on the front, he won't. He sleeps on the porch and David's plan is foiled. And so you remember what David does. He tells his general Joab, when Uriah is at the point... Pull back the troops. He'll be ambushed and there'll be no more Uriah. And then David magnanimously swoops in. He'll come to the rescue of the poor damsel who has lost her husband, a bereaving widow with no means of supporting herself. David will come to the rescue and he'll marry Bathsheba. And he's gotten away with it but not quite. 
Nine months later, God sends his prophet Nathan to confront David. You are the man. David is cut to the quick. Sometimes when we're confronted with sin, we mourn over being caught. We mourn over public evaluation of our sin. We mourn over wearing a cheese head because we bet for the bears. We mourn publicly, but it's not about the sin. We mourn that others know about us. David mourns over his sin. He mourns over being caught, and he writes Psalm 51. There's deep confession. He starts out by saying, have mercy on me, O God. He understands that there's no hope unless God has mercy. There's no hope unless God shows up and does something. Then he says, blot out, verse 1, blot out my transgression. It's an accounting term. He's talking about a ledger. He's saying, Lord, on the ledger in heaven are my sins blotted out. Cover it. He says in verse 2, cleanse me, wash me. This is more than putting in a Tide pod in a washing machine and putting it on delicate. This is going down to the river and beating against the rocks, the cloth, over and over again, getting out the stains, getting out the dirt, getting out the filth. Wash me, cleanse me. And then he says, Lord, remove the sin, the stain. It's actually a word from the industrial world. It's actually a word that that talks about the smelting off of impurities. It's when you heat up metal to several hundreds of degrees and then the impurities bubble up and you take off, you smelt off the impurities. He says, scrub me with the, the Brillo plaid. Take off the impurities. This is serious sin. And David is seriously acting in it, with it. He's asking God to cleanse him, to have mercy, to blot out, to take away. This is mourning over sin. This is what God requires of us. Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. David really doesn't mince words. Seven times he uses the Hebrew word hata, which is the main word for sin. Four more times, verses 1, 2, 3, and 13, he uses two other words for sin. So in 13 verses, 11 times, He says, I have sinned. He's owning it. He's not saying, you know what? The devil made me do it. He's not saying, you know what? It wasn't that bad. Not compared to so-and-so. He's not whitewashing it. He's saying, this is sin, and I have committed it. In fact, in verse 4, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. We don't really like that verse, do we? Against you and you only have I sinned? It's almost offensive. What about Uriah? What about Bathsheba? 
What about his soldiers who have to go out in the field without their king? Against you and you only have I sinned? Come on, David. You sinned against a lot of people. But I think we misunderstand. It's the German theologian Herbert Hag who writes that these words, especially hata, the one used most often, are technical words in Scripture. They're not negating the fact that David wronged, wounded, was treacherous towards, was evil towards others. It's not negating that at all. It's just that these words technically are only against God. We wrong others, we hurt others, we wound others, we're treacherous towards others, we sin against God. And David has sinned against God. And he rightly mourns. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The longer we take to get to that point, the more damage that is done. David takes nine months. He needs another prophet, Nathan, to confront him. But when he's confronted, he gets right with the Lord, but, but there's a lot of collateral damage in between. There's nine months when David really doesn't pray to the Lord, not authentically. We know that because he's not right with God. There's nine months where his relationship with others, still has a barrier. Because when our vertical relationship is wrong, it does hurt the horizontal as well. Nine months. But then he says, blot out, cleanse, remove, wash. And he confesses. And God does cleanse. But herein lies one of the difficult parts the comfort is not always temporal, but it is always eternal. And so David will get eternal comfort. He might even get some temporal relief. But that doesn't mean that the sins don't have consequences in David's life. They did. When Nathan confronted him, Nathan told him two things. The child is going to die. God called the child home. What heartbreak. And he was told that his family would not have tranquility. And it didn't. His son, Ammon, raped his daughter, Tamar. Another son murdered Amnon. Not Amar, Amnon. Another son murdered Amnon for the rape. Another son, Absalom, usurped David's throne and drove his father away in an attempt to murder his father. There was no tranquility left. So David received comfort, but not immediately and not temporally. Because he waited and he waited and he waited. And there was so much collateral damage for those months of not getting right with the Lord. As you and I conclude the second beatitude, let me make a few observations first. In the Bible, sin is a big deal. We laugh at sin, we smile at sin, we wink at sin, we revel in sin. 
And the Bible says that sin destroys, that sin separates us from a holy God, that sin required a sinless one, Jesus, to die on our behalf, that if we would believe and receive him as Savior, we would be given eternal life. Sin is a big deal to God. But even having accepted Christ as Savior, and I I hope and pray you have, sin still is a big deal in the believer's life. I think of Romans 7. In Romans 7, man, I can relate to it. This is not a pre-conversion text on Paul. I don't think that's even possible if you follow the sequence of the book of Romans. I don't think it's possible. And what does Paul say in verse 24? He said, oh, what a wretched man am I who can separate me from this body of sin. And then verse 25, praise to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul, an apostle, carried along by God's spirit to write scripture, he still suffers with sin. But prayerfully, he keeps short accounts. Who can rescue me from this body of sin? It's Christ Jesus. Praise to Christ. We dare not minimize sin. As an unbeliever, we need Christ. As a believer, we need Christ. We need the gospel preached to ourselves day in and day out, asking God to cleanse us, to renew us, to restore us, to empower us through his spirit. Second, The comfort by God promised in the second beatitude is the result of true repentance. Sometimes we get these slobbery prayers and we say, Lord, forgive me. And by the way, I'm golfing later on today. Can you give us a little sun? Maybe about 65 degrees would be nice. And we just move on and we gloss over our sin as though it's no big deal. I think God wants me to name my sin. And he wants me to grieve over my sin, to mourn, panthein, abal, the Greek and Hebrew words, to mourn over my sin. Lord, forgive me, I'm struggling with alcohol. Lord, forgive me, I'm struggling with voyeurism. Put me in an accountability group where where I can find some, some freedom from the sin. Lord, forgive me, I've been a thief. Help me to make restitution and restoration. Lord, forgive me, and and we name the sin. Sin is a big deal to God, and true contrition, true confession leads to repentance, turning away from sin and towards righteousness and making restoration and restitution as is appropriate. I think of Isaiah 55, Verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Turn from it. And the unrighteous man forsake of his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. And what happens? That he may have compassion. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God for he will abundantly pardon 2 Timothy 2.19, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. 
God's comfort is offered to those who depart, who turn, who repent from the sin, we shall be comforted. Finally, it's right for us to mourn over the sin of humanity, not in an arrogant way, not in a those people kind of way. It's a we people kind of way. Think of Jeremiah. He weeps over a nation and writes the book of Lamentations. I think of Jesus in Luke 19, 41 to 44, and he weeps over Jerusalem and then goes and lays down his life on on behalf of a nation. I think of Paul in Acts 20. He says, for three years, day and night, I wept and prayed over you, church at Ephesus. I think of Paul in 1 Corinthians 5. There's an immoral individual in the congregation. And the congregation is broad thinking. And the congregation is tolerant. And the congregation prides itself on, on thinking it's okay to be immoral. And what does Paul say? Should you not have mourned congregation? Not act arrogant, not act prideful. But should we not have mourned? So we mourn over sin. Sin destroys. We mourn in order to confess and repent and make restitution and restoration and God comforts. And we mourn over corporate sin and we become part of the solution rather than the finger-waving part of the accusation. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Let's pray. Father God, help us to learn to take sin seriously, to mourn over sin. And Father, if there be some among us (coughs) that do not know your Son as Savior, I pray maybe at this moment that they might recognize their sin They're in good company or bad company with all of us. They might confess as we all need to and throw themselves as we all must on your mercy and accept your son Jesus as Savior. And Father, for those of us who have already accepted Christ, may we learn to mourn over the besetting sins in our lives, not seeking to be judgmental and arrogant towards others or holier than thou or haughty, but looking to our own sin and that of our neighbor, (coughs) but always addressing the log in our eye before attempting to graciously help the speck in someone else's eye. Make us into these type of Christ followers, we ask. In the name of Jesus, amen.